0: Please take a seat. It's a delight to be uh, with you guys today. Um, We'll be reading from John 15, and that is on page 901 of your Bibles. Uh, Well, of the church Bibles, anyway. I don't know of your personal Bibles. Um, But yeah, please open to John 15 and page 901. I thought before we think about this chapter in particular, it'd be helpful to remember some things about what the whole book of John teaches. John teaches that God is engaged in a mission to the world, a mission to reveal himself to the world, to make himself known through Jesus, and to save and transform a people to be his own, so that they would have eternal life in loving community with God and with each other. John teaches that God engages in this mission as a trinity of a father, son, and Holy Spirit. While he's one God, He is three persons, and each person engages in this mission in a different way. The Father sends the Son into the world. The Son redeems the, his people through his cross. The Son departs uh, to be with his Father, that's when Jesus ascends, and then they both send the Holy Spirit to strengthen God's people and to dwell in them. So, a lot, so, there's a lot of things going on in John, but I find it helpful as a, a quick, brief framework to think of a threefold Godhead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit involved in a twofold mission to reveal God and to save his people. With that in mind, let's turn to John 15. We'll be reading from verses 1 to 17. Jesus says, I am the true vine So have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Something that becomes clear when you read any of Jesus' words is that he's a fantastic teacher. And it's always a re- relief when you have a passage like this, uh, when you have to preach it, where Jesus himself provides the illustration rather than one cobbled together by myself. The controlling metaphor of this passage is the vine and the fruit. The vine and, and vineyard image is one that Jesus brings to completion from the Old Testament. Isaiah 5 tells us about Old Testament Israel as if it were a vineyard that God planted. And this would make, this would make sense to an, uh, to an ancient Israelite. For them, God is the one who made them as a nation. God's their gardener, as it were. He planted them and set them up to bear fruit. He gave ancient Israel a land. He gave them a law. He gave them a king. And they were supposed to be a nation of fruitful believers who obeyed God's commands revealed in his law and experienced God's blessing. However, even though God does so much for them, Isaiah 5 tells us that they're a vine that produced bad grapes. They didn't follow God's law. They didn't produce the fruits of righteousness and justice, but instead they sinned and didn't believe God. So ancient Israel were not a good vine. Even though God did everything for them, they did not produce the fruit God looked for. And that's because their problem was in, on the inside. Their hearts were hard. This helps us to understand why Jesus calls himself the true vine. Ancient Israel did not bear the fruit that God is looking for, but Jesus does. Jesus is the, is the real vine, the, the true vine, the vine that was to come. Jesus is the one who produces the fruit of righteousness. He's, he's righteous in and of himself. And he's the only way anyone can be a fruitful believer. That's what he teaches in this passage. The questions that we might have when we uh, approach this passage is, how can I be a fruitful believer? What sort of fruits will I see? And so the first point is that to be a fruitful believer, you have to abide in Jesus. I want to look particularly at verses 1 to 6 for this. Two things to pick out are that abiding in Jesus means an attitude of dependence on him and an action of obedience. An attitude of dependence and an action of obedience. Jesus makes clear here that his people, whether they see it or not, depend totally on him for their spiritual nourishment and not themselves. We know that to keep our our bodies healthy, we depend on food and drink, sleep, exercise. But our souls depend on Jesus to be healthy. John Calvin said that Christ is the only pasture for our souls. Our souls feed on Jesus to be healthy. And Jesus says, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus compares the, he's talking to the disciples here, and he compares them to branches on a vine. The branches in themselves don't bear any fruit. It's only when they're connected to the main plant, connected to the vine. No one can be righteous in God's eyes and fruitful without being attached to Jesus. Just like how no twig that's on the ground bears any fruit because it's not attached to the plant. That has implications for the whole, the whole world. It's not the case that there are many paths to God, and many ways to be right with God. Jesus says, I am the true vine. There are no other ways to be right with God other than to be abiding in Jesus. He says, I am the vine, not a vine. In fact, Jesus is clear in verse 6 that anyone who does not abide in Jesus withers and experiences the judgment of God. There are those who claim that Jesus never claimed to be the only way to God, but Clearly here, Jesus is uncomfortably exclusive. He says, I am the true vine, and you cannot bear fruit apart from me. It's also got pressing implications as believers. We completely depend on Jesus, whether we see it or accept it or not. As believers and Christians, we want to grow spiritually. We want to become more like Jesus. We want to be mature Christians, as the New Testament puts it. But Jesus makes clear that we can only grow insofar as we are attached to him. One of the biggest sections in bookshops these days is self-improvement, that you can make yourself a better person, smarter, fitter, better with people. And sometimes we can approach God a bit like that too. Sure, it it was on God to convert us. But then after that, it's on us to achieve the good Christian life. We might feel an immense amount of pressure or feel anxious about our faith, like we need to get everything right because it all depends on us. And in those cases, making a mistake or being corrected can feel catastrophic. But Jesus says, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. We bear fruit and mature as Christians not because. We manage to do everything perfectly, but because we're connected to Christ. Jesus sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in all his people. And some people you know, ask, well, what is the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Well, the Holy Spirit is the one who applies to our hearts all the blessings of God earned by Christ on the cross. He communicates Christ's fruitfulness to us. And if you belong to Christ, the Holy Spirit abides with you forever. Even when you're weak and failing, he'll make you fruitful. On the, on the other side of the spectrum, we might be tempted to be, take a little too much pride in our faith. We can very easily go, to our, go straight to our heads when we feel like we're doing a good job as Christians. Maybe we've had a period where we've not, not failed in the face of temptation. Or maybe we've had some success in evangelism. Perhaps we look down on the rest of the world for being lost. This is a helpful verse for proud Christians. Our, our achievements are actually Christ's achievements. We're just the branches. He is the, he's the source. He's the main plant. Apart from him, we can do nothing. And apart from him, we would still be spiritually dead in our sins. So to abide in Jesus... We have to recognize that we can do nothing apart from him and we have to adopt an attitude of dependence on Jesus rather than dependence on the self. Secondly, abiding in Jesus means obedience. Since we depend on Jesus, we have to listen to him to know what to do. Look at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. For Jesus, abiding in him means that you recognize your own dependence on him and therefore you listen to him. Abiding in Jesus means obedience to his commandments. And this can be a, a difficult thing to grasp. Our, we know that our faith is different to other faiths and that we, we don't claim that there's this set of rules to obey, to be saved. But we're saved by the actions of someone else. We're saved by the actions of Jesus. And it's not because of our efforts that we're we're saved, but it's because of Jesus. We have the key verse, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't because we've earned his salvation. And what Jesus says here is not in conflict with that. There was nothing that we did that merited Christ saving us. He says to the disciples in verse 3, Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. And then he tells them, that they have to obey his commands. We're saved by Jesus first and then in order to obey him. The pattern of the Christian life isn't, I obey Jesus and I hope he will save me. The pattern is Jesus has saved me already while I was a rebellious sinner. And now he owns me and so I obey him. There's an encouragement here that obeying Jesus and paying close attention to his words and applying them to our lives is a good thing. For us to do. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Jesus promises that we'll bear much fruit when we obey him. If you're someone who's trusting what Jesus says and striving to obey him, he says that there will be much fruit for that. It will be worth it despite how difficult it can be to resist temptation. And it will be worth it despite how discouraging it can be when we fail even when we fail, He will still make us fruitful because it's on Him and not us. If you examine your heart and you find that deep down you're trusting in yourself to be saved by how good you are, remember that Jesus says that you can do nothing apart from Him. We will be much more fruitful as believers when we depend on Jesus rather than ourselves. If you're someone who claims the title Christian but Knows deep down that it's not important to you to obey Jesus. Remember that Jesus saved His people to obey Him. In fact, there's a warning in this passage for people who are Christians in name only and don't want to obey Jesus. If you don't abide in Jesus, you will wither. In verse six, we will experience His eternal judgment. That's the fire in that verse. There's a promise for fruit, promise of fruit for abiding in Him, but a promise of judgment for not this applies to us on a corporate level as a church as well. It's helpful to examine ourselves and make sure that we're doing church the way that Christ commands it to be done. Are we sharing Christ's priorities as a church? Are we teaching what Christ teaches? Church needs to be done the way Christ said it should be done because that's the way he promised would be fruitful. I'm sure we're often troubled by Reports of churches making compromises under the pressure of the outside world, but the church is not accountable to the world. It's accountable to Christ. We may experience pressure from the outside world to do certain things, but the Bible has to remain our authority. That's how the church as a corporate body abides in Jesus. So the first point, to be fruitful, abide in Jesus. The second point is that When we abide in Jesus, that means that we will bear and enjoy Christ's fruit. Verses 7 to 11 show us a bit of what it's like to be a fruitful believer. Firstly, in verse 7, we can be assured that the Father listens to our prayers. Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. These words seem very strong. And I, I, I don't want to seem like I'm watering down Jesus' promises, but it's important for us to read it carefully. We probably have all experienced times when we've prayed for something and it hasn't happened. Is that in conflict with this verse? I, I'm convicted that if any of us have a practice of writing down what we pray for, we'll probably be pleasantly surprised at how much is answered. But Jesus isn't promising a blanket yes to everything We ask for. Imagine if we asked for something sinful in our prayers. It would be worrying if God were to go against his own nature and answer that. It would mean that God would be going against his own character. Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words words abide in you, it will be done for you. He says, if my words abide in you. When Christians listen to Jesus' teaching and his words are internalized in us, we're transformed to be like Jesus, and we'll we'll share his priorities. Our prayers will become like his prayers. In chapter 17, for example, he prays for the sanctification and the unity of his people. That is a prayer that will most surely be answered. James 1, James chapter 1 encourages us that if anyone prays for wisdom, God will grant it to him. That is a prayer that will always be answered. In fact, 1 John 5 says that if we ask for anything according to God's will, he will hear us. So Jesus promises that we'll be fruitful prayers, that we'll have full assurance as believers that God hears us. God does know better, to, better than us, but he still listens. He listens to us when we express our fears and our doubts directly to him. In verse 8, we see that abiding in Jesus results in in us glorifying God. Jesus says in verse 8, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. God is glorified by his people depending on Jesus and obeying him. To glorify God means to bring honor to him and to show the world that he's worthy to be praised. The idea behind God's people glorifying him is that the whole world We'll see God's wisdom, God's power, God's beauty, and God's love displayed through God's people. I think it's helpful to think about it like the sun and the moon. God in his glory is a bit like the sun. The sun just radiates light and heat all by itself. It doesn't get its light from somewhere else. It's self-generated. Similarly, God has glory that is intrinsic to who he is. He radiates Beauty. He radiates power, wisdom, and love. At nighttime, in, in a dark world that is turned away from the sun, the sun's light still reaches it by reflection off the moon. The moon doesn't have its own light, but it reflects the sun. And similarly, God's glory reaches a dark world that's turned away from Him through His people. That's what it's like for God's people to glorify God. That all the world sees God's power, love, wisdom, and beauty displayed and reflected in God's people. And what this passage tells us is that we glorify God by abiding in Jesus and bearing his fruit. The world sees God's activity in our lives not not primarily by strange coincidences or miracles or amazing spiritual experiences, primarily the world sees God's glory when we abide in Jesus, when we're openly dependent on him, when we're happy to obey him, despite all the other pressures. And if we're depending on Jesus and simply obeying him, we can be assured that we're glorifying him, even if we can't see it. I don't know if you're ever worried that you're not impressive enough to be glorifying God. Well, Jesus tells us it's not our big achievements that glorify God, but our dependence on him. The church shows God's glory to the world, not when it looks impressive or big or rich, but when the church does things the way God commands. Verses 9 and 10 tell us that abiding in Jesus means that we remain in his love forever. One of the things Jesus achieves for his people is their complete reconciliation to God. Without Jesus, we're under the wrath of God, as John teaches us in chapter 3, verse 36. But Jesus brings his people out of God's wrath and into his love. And it's a very intimate love, as we learn in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And Jesus says in John 17 that those who believe in him are loved by God the Father, even as the Father loves Christ. When we're abiding in Jesus, we're experiencing the most close and intimate and loving relationship with God that is possible. Tim Keller expressed the gospel as the following. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. It is difficult to overestimate how much God loves us through Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And This isn't Jesus saying that you have to earn your way into his love. We know that God demonstrated his love for us in this way, that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans 5. But he is saying, you can only have real assurance of his love if you're abiding in Jesus. If you love Jesus and you obey him, and you're fighting against your temptation to do that, even if you fail sometimes, you can have full assurance that you are in Jesus' love. Fourthly, in verse eleven, abiding in Jesus gives us fullness of joy. Jesus says, These things I've spoken to you that your joy, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Abiding in Jesus gives us the full experience of joy, a type of joy that will never grow boring. He says two things here, that his joy will be in us and that our joy will be full. As Christians, we have access to the purest form of joy, a type of joy that comes from God. No one else in the world has access to the joy of sins forgiven, of knowing they have a loving relationship with God the Father. We have an assurance that we're going to live for an eternity in the joyful presence of God. We all have the assurance that even if all of their friends and family desert us, Jesus loves us completely, even to the point of giving his life. There's a joy that we're able to have because we've received such good news about God's love for us through Jesus Christ. We have access to that joy in all of our circumstances. Ultimately, we receive the fullness of joy in in eternity. In heaven. One writer says that because of Jesus, in this life joy enters us, but in the next life we enter joy. God gives us enough joy to keep us going now, but in, in eternity joy will engulf us and it will be everything we know. There are many sorrows for us to bear now, but Jesus gives us access to a joy that is entirely separate to our circumstances. His joy is in us if we abide in him. And because we abide in him, what we have awaiting us next is the most joy possible for an eternity. A joy that never ends and only grows. So these verses paint a pretty glorious picture of what a fruitful believer looks like who abides in Jesus. A fruitful believer who lives with the assurance that God's ear is always towards them. And always listens to their prayers, a believer who glorifies God and points the world to him. A believer who keeps Christ's commandments and knows that they are in his love. A joy, a believer who has joy that comes from God, that can be accessed whenever. And if you're someone who loves Jesus and believes in them, this is who you are already. Even if you don't always feel it or see it, as believers who have been changed by Jesus, this is who we are now at the core. We are fruitful believers. We might only see it fleetingly. We might only experience that joy in, in bursts or at different times. But we are those believers now. Finally, in verse 12 to 17, we see that abiding in Jesus means that we have fellowship with God. Listen to what he says in 12 to 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Jesus' death on the cross means that we can be his friends. We were once rebels against God. Paul the Apostle said that we were once foolish, disobedient led astray slaves to passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and uh, hating one another and critically hating God. But this section shows us that Jesus makes us his friend when we abide in him. I'm sure that we all understand that not all friendships are exactly the same. Each friendship has a slightly different character. I I have one friend who... Only needs to look at me in a certain way, and I'll laugh. We did Cornhill together. It was very challenging in the talks. I have another friend who's a bit more of a mentor sort of figure. Chats with him are more serious, bit less less laughter, but he's no less a friend than the first one. So what then is the character of our friendship with Jesus? Well, these verses reveal it's a character of great love and great access. It's a friendship where God shows great love to us and we show great love back to him. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And that's Jesus explaining his death on the cross. He did that for his people, for his friends. Jesus is a friend of ours in whom there is no ounce of selfishness. He gives up his very life for us, his friends. In that way, Jesus is a greater friend than anyone else we can have. He's a greater friend than our bestie, a greater friend than our spouse, a greater friend than our parents and our family. He willingly lays down his life for us, even though there's nothing lovely in us that would compel him to do so. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. And again, we see in these verses that for us to show our love back to him is to be obedient to him. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. How do we show Jesus that we love him? By obeying him. How do we show him that his friendship for us is reciprocated? By obeying him. Secondly, it's a, it's a friendship of access. Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Being friends with Jesus means that we get a knowledge of what God is doing and what God is like that no one else gets. Jesus has given a body of truth in his words, in his Bible, that only his people will accept and believe. And that's very special. So we have friendship with God as believers in 12 to 15. And in 16 to 17, we see that we also participate in his mission. You might remember at the start that I mentioned God's mission to reveal himself to the world and to redeem a people for himself. Through the gospel, God's people participate in that mission. Through the gospel, we share with the people around us the word that reveals Jesus to them and the word through which They will have faith and be saved. Jesus says here to his apostles, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Jesus here appointed the apostles so that they would go and reveal his gospel to the ends of the earth. Jesus gave his full revelation of God to the church through the apostles and now we, the church, bring this revelation to the world. We, we aren't apostles. We don't write new scripture. But we participate in God's mission insofar as we pass on the gospel that we've received. So we have fellowship with God because he is our friend through Jesus. And we join him in his mission to bring the gospel to the world. I think the way that Jesus finishes this section... Is remarkable too. Why does he tell us these things? In verses 1 to 17, he says, these things I command you so that you will love one another. The truths that Jesus teaches in this passage change us more than just individually, but also as a community of people. He says these things so that we will love one another as a church. Each of us in this room will love one another. Jesus tells us that abiding in him means to depend on him. Well, we must depend on him by praying to Jesus for each other. That's how we obey Jesus and love one another. We must obey Jesus when he tells us to love one another. And when Jesus paints the picture of the fruitful believer who's assured that God believes them, oh sorry, is assured that God listens to them, who glorifies God, who remains in God's love who experiences God's joy, those are things that we should look for in each other and seek for each other. Jesus tells us to build each other up and encourage each other with his word. When one of us wanders away, we do our best to bring them back. When one of us is feeling discouraged, we encourage them with Christ's word. That's how we love each other. And through Jesus Jesus gospel he's given us privileged access to knowledge of him and what he's doing in the world so on that we'll I think we'll finish there let's uh let's pray father we uh, thank you for Jesus we thank you that he's revealed you to us we thank you that through him you saved us and um, we pray that you'd help us to depend on him rather than ourselves. We pray that you'd help us to obey Jesus and listen to him. We pray that you'd help us all to become, to become who we really are deep down, that we are already fruitful believers if we believe. And we pray that you'd help us to become even more so. Um, we pray that uh, you'd help us to show the world your gospel and to bring glory uh, to you. Through sharing your word, um, in Jesus' name, Amen.